0: Well, Christmas is called the most wonderful time of the year, and in many ways, it really is. Uh, People are happier, it seems, during the Christmas season. They smile a lot more. They say, Merry Christmas. They're more generous during this time. I love watching the joy and the wonder on the faces of kids. We took our grandson to look at lights on Thursday night in the Broadmoor area, and went around the hotel, and, and just his eyes lit up as he saw a reindeer on rooftops, and Trees all decorated. I mean, kids make Christmas so special when you see uh, the wonder on their faces. I personally really like the stillness of cold, dark winter nights and the twinkling lights outside. I mean, I just like to stand in the stillness of it. And those old carols like Silent Night, Holy Night or Oh, Holy Night, um, just seems so powerful in those moments. It truly is a wonderful time. But I know for many, it's a very difficult time. And maybe because of the season of life you're in right now, this is a difficult season. There's all kinds of stresses involved with Christmas. Going to parties, dressing up, getting your house decorated, buying gifts, you're, you're afraid of going into debt and how you're gonna pay for all the things that people expect you to do. And there's a lot of anxiety going through this season. We also have many families within our own church who suffered a great loss this year. Someone that normally is at the, at the Christmas table won't be there this year. And so it's, it's a little bit of a sad time for them as they, as they mourn the absence of this person. And so we recognize the fact that Christmas brings a whole bag of mixed emotions into it. But what I want us to do for the next two Sundays, today and next week, is go back to the simple Christmas story. And actually, the one we're going to talk about today is is a pre-Christmas story because we're going to talk about two boys over the next two weeks. One is focused on in Luke chapter 1, one is focused on in Luke chapter 2. These two boys grew up in the very same region of the world, born just months apart. Both of their mothers had miraculous conceptions, and both grew up to serve the Lord. One John the Baptist became the forerunner of Jesus, and of course, Jesus the Christ the, the, the Messiah that had been promised. Both ministered before the Lord and both died at the, around the age of 30 or the early 30s. They were both executed because of the truth that they proclaimed. And so we're gonna look at their stories today. And I believe that in each of their stories is, is a message that'll help carry us through this time and really help us get anchored in again on what Christmas is all about. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along in Luke chapter one as we look at this first story today. Now I wanna give a lot of history to get the background to this, so just follow along with me. The, the writing of the Old Testament ends with Malachi chapter 4, with God making a promise that before the great day of the Lord would come, he would send his prophet Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, to turn the hearts of Israel back to the Lord. But from that time to the beginning of the New Testament was a period of 400 years of Silence. A period of time when no prophets spoke, no scriptures were written, generation after generation uh, rose up and passed away without hearing a word from the Lord, which is very unusual because all through the Old Testament, there was a constant flow of prophets who would call people back to faith and repentance, even in the midst of their disobedience, but not at this time. From the, from the close of the time of Daniel, when they were in Babylon until the time of the New Testament was a silent period. Now, in between that period of time, 400 years, a lot happened to Israel and the city of Jerusalem. First, they came under the power of the Medo-Persians, and then they came under the power of the Greeks, and then the Egyptians. Eventually, the time of the New Testament, they're under the power of Rome. Now, in the midst of all that, there was an invasion by a Syrian army led by a man named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and Antiochus Epiphanes so hated the Jews that he went into the temple, destroyed the sacred scrolls, and sacrificed a pig on the holy altar. Now, if you know the Jewish culture, that's very offensive. He actually made a broth from the, from the deceased pig and then sprayed its, its liquid all over the temple just to really desecrate it and infuriate the Jewish people. They were forbidden to celebrate their festivals, to practice circumcision. And to observe the Sabbath. Basically, they were, they were told to worship the idols that were set up and the gods they put in place or else they were to be killed. And in the midst of that arose a man, a defiant man named Judas Maccabeus. And he pulled together an army. And though they were outnumbered greatly, they fought against the Syrian army and won two significant major battles. They recaptured Jerusalem and recaptured the temple. And what they did when they recaptured the temple was to go in and they they went to where the light was, this, this called the eternal light. And they found that there was one jar of oil left for the light. And so they lit the lamp. And then they sent someone to go find more oil, and the legend says that it took eight days for that man to return with oil, But, but during those eight days, that one little jar which was only supposed to last one day, lasted eight days miraculously. And so the Jewish people celebrated a new festival called Hanukkah, which means Festival of the Lights or Feast of Dedication. And what they do even today, it's one of the major celebrations, even though it's not a biblical holiday, where they take the menorah, the candelabra with that has nine spots on it, eight candles that are all at the same level and the one in the middle higher. That one is used to light all the other ones. And they are to remember the eight days when God enabled that light to burn. And even today, it's a symbol of them, of their identity and their stand against the influences of a pagan culture. But well, we come to the New Testament and open the pages there and find that Rome is in charge and Rome has placed over Judea, the people of of the Jewish faith, a man by the name of Herod to oversee them. And so we pick up the story in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, I'm gonna pause right there just to let you know a little bit about Herod. Herod wasn't Jewish. Herod was an Edomite. He came from the line of Esau, not the line of Jacob. He came from the line of Esau, and yet his father, a few decades before, had converted the family to Judaism to win favor with the Jewish people. And they lived kind of a half life. They, they kind of lived the Jewish life, but also lived the, the cultural, the Roman life. And so they were despised by the Jewish people because Herod, even though he claimed to be Jewish, didn't live like a Jew, wasn't devoted to God. Now, Herod's known for many things, he was a ruthless leader. He would destroy any opposition. He was even known to kill his own family members who he felt threatened by. He was a fantastic architect. He expanded the the dimensions of the temple, the courtyard and the temple itself, had it rebuilt. And it was said to be one of the most glorious buildings of that day. He built a port of Caesarea. He built this fortress known as Masada. Masada. So these great, big architectural projects um, Herod was responsible for. And yet, in the midst of all that, for example, with the temple, he placed at the entrance to the temple the symbol of the Roman government, the eagle. And so he was mixing, mixing the Roman culture with the Jewish faith, which didn't make the Jewish people happy. He was walking a line of trying to win favor with both. He had to, he had to demonstrate to Rome that he was loyal to them, that he was faithful to them, that he would execute the things that he w- they wanted executed. He would collect the taxes. He would keep the peace among the people. And yet at the same time, he wanted the Jewish people to be happy. And so he made some compromises and built the temple and did some other things. Now the truth of the matter is, Herod was not sympathetic to the Jewish faith because when the wise men came and told him that there was one that the scriptures had promised to be born king of the Jews, that he finally had been born... You can read in Matthew 2, Herod had all the little boys that were two years old and under executed because he wanted no threat to his throne. He wanted to remain as king of the Jews. So go back to the story. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Two individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. Elizabeth means God is my oath. Both came from priestly lines. So they had a very very noble family line. And Zechariah was a priest. And together it says they were blameless before God. Meaning that not only did they obey the commandments of God, but their heart was pure before him. They were, they were good on the outside and good on the inside. That's what integrity is. It was a man and a woman of integrity. They loved and they served God. In spite of the fact they had this great point of pain in their life. They didn't have a child. And here they were well along in years. And if you know anything about the biblical culture, the Middle Eastern culture, to not have children was considered disgraceful. And you can go back to Hannah in the Old Testament or Rachel or here with Elizabeth. They longed to bear children. And so it says, now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Three times a year, all of the priests would come to Jerusalem for a major festival, Pentecost, Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But the rest of the year, they operated on a rotation basis. Every, there were 24 units. David had established this in the Old Testament. 24 divisions. He belonged to the division of Abijah. And they would have two weeks out of the year where they would serve from Sabbath to Sabbath. And they would manage the affairs of the temple. They would offer the sacrifices of animals, of grain, and of incense. At this time, there were approximately 20,000 priests and when, when their group came, which was roughly about a 1,000 priests, they would draw lots to see who would, who would go in to light the incense. They would light it twice a day. There would be someone who'd go in at 9 o'clock in the morning and light incense before the morning sacrifice, and someone at 3 in the afternoon before the afternoon sacrifice. And the reason they did that was when the offering was actually offered to God, now I like I like barbecued meat. I think that has a great smell by itself. But they offer the incense at the same time as if to wrap this this meat that was being offered in this pleasant aroma to God. And while that was all rising up to God, outside were people praying so their prayers would ascend to God. So all this stuff's going upward to God simultaneously. And two individuals, two priests each day, would, would draw lots roll the dice, I'm not sure how they did that, but roll stones, and if they were fortunate, and sometimes they would only get to do that once, if at all, in their whole lifetime. On this particular day, Zechariah's lot is chosen. We don't know if it was the morning or afternoon period, but he was chosen for one of the times that day to light the incense. Here's what happened in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah goes in. He's preparing to light the incense. There's a, there's a room called the Holy of Holies which only the high priest could enter, and that was only one time a year. He's not going into that room. Out, just outside of the room, outside this thick curtain, the veil, is this altar of incense. So he's lighting the altar of incense there, and then this angel appears. Now, if you know about angels, angels appear at very significant times in the Bible. Uh, at, at moments when God is doing something great, the angels appear. So the birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, the, the resurrection of Jesus, the launch of the church, we find these events through the Bible where angels show up. And contrary to Hollywood or or modern art, these angels were not were not chubby little children. Okay, they weren't cherubs, they weren't these little chubby little things. They're cute and cuddly, and they weren't effeminate creatures with wings. Almost always they appear to be human and masculine, strong and intimidating. That's why in almost every case, people are afraid of the angels. And Zechariah is no exception. He is fearful before him. And so the angel says to him, same thing the angels always say, do not be afraid. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. You and your wife will have a son and you're to name him John and he'll be a joy and a delight to you and to many. Now the name John means the Lord is gracious. And this child would grow up to be one who in the spirit of Elijah the fulfillment of the prophecy, the last, the last word of the Old Testament, would come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the people back to the Lord to prepare them for the coming Messiah. So it says in 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I like how he says that. Didn't say she's an old woman. She's mature. I'm an old guy, but I've got a mature wife. And when the time of service ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. And so Zechariah just can't believe this is happening. He's kind of like Abraham in the Old Testament. Very similar. Abraham was told that he and his wife Sarah would have a baby, and they were close to 100 years old. And they laughed. And here's is kind of questioning the angel, like, how, how is this going to happen? You know, we're, we're pretty old, you know that. And then the angel, I can almost feel this angel puffing his chest and go, I am Gabriel, and I stood in the presence of the Lord and am delivering his message to you. And because you don't believe, you will go mute until all these things come to pass. Now, Elizabeth might have been pretty happy with that. <laughs> Quiet husband, peaceful home, she can just focused on the baby. And, and, and Zechariah must come out there gesturing like crazy because they said they knew something happened because he motioned to them, but no words came out. So they knew he'd seen something pretty phenomenal and which he, he really had. But in this period of time, Elizabeth becomes pregnant and Zechariah kind of ironic. 400 years of silence is broken by this visitation of the angel, and now he goes into his personal nine months of silence. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so Elizabeth bears this child. And I I would have assumed that Zechariah thought, finally I'll get to talk, but he still didn't get to talk. Not for eight more days until the day of circumcision, which typically was the day when the male children were circumcised and then given their name. And when the name that God had given him was written on the tablet... That was a moment where his tongue was loosened and he was able to speak. And what's amazing is the first words out of his mouth weren't, ah, it's so good to be talking. <laughs> his first words were, were blessing. All he could do is praise God. Now, there's a whole um, statement of his blessing to God, and just for the sake of time, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna read the second half of it, but listen to his blessing that he gave to God. Starting at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This boy, you're gonna prepare the way for peace. You're gonna, you're gonna show people the path to true forgiveness. It's not just a path of peace. It's a path to the Prince of Peace. For when he comes, he says, it will be like the sunrise in the darkness. I love that picture, kind of like Dustin was talking about earlier. The message of the coming of Christ would be like the sunrise on a dark morning. That day is coming and is on the verge of coming, and you'll get to usher it in. Well, I want to look back over this story because I think this story reminds us of something about God, something that you and I need to remember this Christmas season. And it's this, that God is faithful. God is so faithful, you can always count on him. There are a number of ways that's revealed in this story. And so I want to I draw four of those out. First, you, you can count on him because he always keeps his promises. If you remember, though, though Herod is the king appointed by the, the Roman government, He's not the king that God has in mind because God had promised years ago that the king would come from the line of Judah, from the family line of of the sons of Israel. There's one named Judah. The Messiah would come from that line, not only from that line, but from a specific family in that line, the family of David. So God told David, when David was king, he was the greatest king of Israel, God said this to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So he's speaking of Jesus. Jesus will come from the line of David. Now if you, if you go to chapter three of Luke, and look through the genealogy where he lists um, uh, Jesus' heritage. Right in the middle of that genealogy, it says, um, Son of, uh, of David, who was the son of Jesse. Jesus came from the royal line. He's the rightful king. And though at the time, it seemed like God's promise had failed, God was still unfolding his fulfillment of his promise to bring his son through the line of David to sit on the throne. He would sit on his throne. He would be the final king of Israel. His kingdom would reign forever and ever. He would, he would build God's house. Now, when Jesus was on earth, he says, I will build my church. I will build this, this house of people which will belong to the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Luke chapter one, we skipped over a part of the story because we'll talk about it next week. But there's the conception of of Jesus in Mary and when an angel comes to talk to Mary the angel says to her in Luke chapter 1 verses 31 to 33 behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end God was keeping his promise. Now, you need to know that because the Bible is a promise book. You know there's over 8,000 promises in this book? Some are promises that have already been fulfilled. Some are promises that will be fulfilled multiple times. Some are promises that are yet to be fulfilled in the future. Some promises were given to individuals in the Bible. Some were given to, to people like the nation of Israel or to the church. But you know what? A lot of the promises are given to you and to me to people who trust in the Lord, uh, of promises that God intends to fulfill. And here's what I know about God. His word is like gold. When God says he's gonna do something, he'll do it. Now, he may not do it the way we want or in the timing we want, but he will fulfill his promise. It's been a long time waiting for the king to come, but God kept his promise. And you and I need to know that because during this time of our lives, some of you in this place have suffered the failure of someone's promise, Maybe it was a promise of a father or a mother that they made to you to be there for you, to walk with you through a, a time of your life, and they didn't. Maybe, maybe you stood before a pastor at one time with a loved one, and you pledged yourself to each other in the vows of marriage, and yet, yet those vows were broken. The promises weren't kept. Maybe, maybe you have a friend who's made promises to you that have been broken. And you're heartbroken. You wonder, is there anybody I can trust? And I want to tell you, God can be trusted. He is the ultimate promise keeper. He's made promises to you and me. Just read through the Bible, read through Psalm 37. Almost every verse is a promise to those who would trust Him. God makes promises to us, and He intends to keep every single one of them. He is a promise keeper. He promised to give Zechariah and Elizabeth the son, He promised to give Israel a king, and He promises to remove the darkness. By his light. God's a promise keeper. You can count on him to do that. God is faithful. You can count on him to remember your faithfulness. It says that Zechariah and Elizabeth lived righteous before God. Now that, that word before God, actually is a significant word, because it means in the face of God. It's almost as if on a stage, they were, they were living out their lives to where God could see everything that was going on in their life. I want to ask you, do you live your life that way? When you're in your, in your man cave, when, when you're in your bedroom and the TV on, you're on your computer, are you, are you doing the things you're doing before the Lord? I think if we would envision ourselves of, of living our lives before the face of the Lord, we would live a little differently. And yet this couple lived a righteous life. But I had to, I had to wonder if they ever questioned, was it worth it? Because sometimes when you live a godly life, when you're the one that, that's honest, when you're the one that follows the rules, when you're the one that does what the company says you should do, when you're not, do, you're not doing what everyone else is doing, you're not trying to get away with stuff, when everyone else is heading to the bar after work and you say, you know what, I'm going to go home to be with my wife or my husband. When all the other kids are, are doing an activity and you say, you know what, I, I know that's popular, I know that's cool, but I'm not going to do it that aren't there times where you step back and go, golly, is it worth it? Because it seems like everyone else is succeeding. Everyone else is getting away with it and they seem to be pretty happy, but I'm the one suffering and I'm the one trying to do the right thing, but you need to know this. God is watching and he honors your faithfulness and Zechariah and Elizabeth were being watched by God and God promised to bless them. Took a while for them to see it, but they got blessed in an enormous way. Listen to this um, promise God makes in, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings. A faithful man will abound with blessings. Listen to Psalm 84, 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you walk before the Lord, he says, I'm not gonna withhold any good thing that I have for you. So be confident of this. If you are trying to live your life pleasing to the Lord, you may not see it right now, but hold on. Keep being faithful. God sees it. He will honor your faithfulness. He pays attention. I know sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Sometimes physically you don't feel blessed. Maybe materially you don't feel blessed. But I believe his, his blessings are more spiritual than material. I've been in many parts of the world and watched people who I, I find who are very faithful to God. Faithful to the most of us. And they suffer through po- poverty. They suffer through persecution. And yet they would tell me they are in, in, immeasurably blessed by God. God will bless your faithfulness. He's faithful to do that. He's also faithful to work out his plan. To work out his plan. God often unfolds his plan in the midst of the routine. We find Moses who's up in the hills tending sheep. We find Gideon who's in the threshing floor. We find Peter casting nets for fish. Or Matthew who's collecting taxes. In the midst of that God comes and meets them and, and gives them a challenge or, or calls them to come and follow him. It's during the, the routine, the mundane parts of life. And sometimes we, we sit back, we say, God, I'm just waiting for you to unfold your plan. Show me what you want me to do. And God says, get doing something. Carry out the things that you have to do before you. It may seem mundane, it may seem boring, but it's in the midst of those things that God often shows up. So carry out those faithful duties. A car that has the engine running, is far easier to move than a car that's yet to start. And when you're already active and your engine's going, God says, okay, now that you're moving, I'm gonna take you that direction or that direction. God is working out his plan in, in our lives. And his plan for Zechariah that day was, was determined by a roll of the dice. He got, his number was chosen to go light the incense in the temple that day. The odds were like one in 500. There were about 1,000 priests. There's two that are going to get selected that day. But one in 500, he gets it. And, and likely, most priests would get it one shot during their whole lifetime, if even that. What were the odds of that? Was it just coincidence? Or did God somehow oversee the roll of the dice? Now, I have to tell you, I believe God can, can manage that. God can oversee even the roll of dice. Back in Bible college, we didn't watch TV and cable definitely wasn't in our dorm rooms. We played backgammon during free time. If any of you played backgammon? You know, it, was, it, was, it was a very fun game, rolling the dice and moving your chips around. And so some of us really got into backgammon. We actually had nicknames for our, 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 our persona as we played. I was the Bermuda wall. If a chip came into my, in between my walls, it vanished. And so we were on a bus ride with... Um, for a choir tour and there were a couple girls in a seat behind a uh, roommate of mine Chuck and myself and they were trying to figure out how to play backgammon so we were explaining it to them we said you know if you roll doubles it's really cool in backgammon because you get double the number of moves when you get doubles like if you get double sixes you actually get to move four sixes so, which is it's an incredible move and so I just jokingly grabbed the dice and I said now if you hold the dice like this and then flip them like that you'll get double sixes and I did <laughs> It was, I was amazed. Oh, wow, I, ca- I called it. You know the odds of that? It's one in 36. So Chuck then grabs the dice and says, yeah, you just, you just go like this. And he did it. And he got double sixes. You know what the odds of that happening twice? It's one in almost 1,300. And I had to almost start to laugh, say, God, are you doing something here? Because this is really strange. We said, let's try it one more time. And we didn't get it. <laughs> Streak was broken. Now, I don't know if God was just kind of laughing from heaven at that moment, but it really is amazing to think the odds of that were so slim, and yet it happened. And I wonder sometimes in our lives how many events we sometimes blame or or credit coincidence when God says, hey, I did that. I lined up that appointment for you. I put that person in your life. I mean, how many times have you ended up encountering a person or having an appointment that you would consider a divine appointment. You go, wow, I needed that today. Maybe it was a time that you woke up, didn't want to go to church, God, and God nudged you. You came to church, and you go, oh my goodness, the sermon was just what I needed to hear. Or the, the, the message that Pastor Matt gave during worship was just what I needed to hear. Or that person I talked to in the foyer. Man, is like God positioned them in my life at the time. I've experienced that time and time in my life. And I wonder sometimes, is that just coincidence, or is God unfolding his plan in our lives? I remember when I was in graduate school, I knew that I needed to have more experience, so I I was praying that God would open up a door for me to go work at a church for a year so I could really determine what I wanted to do or I felt I was gifted to do with my life. And I was standing in front of a bulletin board one day, and there this this new notice appeared. There was a church in Arizona offering an internship, a year-long internship for a graduate student. So I applied, and I was accepted in that position It was at that church where I met my wife. It was at that church where I refined, really, my calling for ministry. And I wonder, was that just coincidence that I happened to see that piece of paper on the bulletin board that day? Or was that part of God's unfolding plan? Maybe you go home and you open up the mailbox or your your email box and there's a message from someone, and you needed that message at just the right time. A check arrives in the mail. It's a refund that you didn't even expect. came just at the right time. How many of you have had experiences like that, and you have to stand back and go, is that just coincidence, or is there God in heaven who's working out his plan in my life? Listen to this. This is from the Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You can plan all you want. In fact, we're told in the book of James, You know, make your plans, but then say if it's the Lord's will. So plan all you want, but then hold your plans loosely before the Lord and say, God, this is what I think I should do, but my plans are flexible because I'm trusting you to guide me. God is faithful to work out his plan in your life. And finally, he's faithful to answer your prayers. Gabriel reminds Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Now, he doesn't say specifically what prayers. What's he been praying for? Was he he praying for the Messiah to come? That was a common prayer uh, that day. Or maybe Gabriel was saying, you know the prayers you and your wife have prayed for decades, for years and years, that you would have a child? God heard that prayer, but now is the time when he's answering that prayer. God is faithful to answer prayers. And yet oftentimes we get discouraged when time goes by and we don't see our prayers answered. We're, we're ready to give up. I'm praying for that thing. Maybe it's a salvation for someone. Maybe it's an opportunity that, that we've been praying for God to give us. Maybe it's something God's put on our heart that we would do for him and we keep praying and it doesn't happen. And so we stop. And you know what What doesn't help is we live in a culture where if you, if you pick up your phone and push some buttons, you can get packages arrive on your doorsteps in two days. That easy. And yet, prayer seems so slow and so difficult at times. God, I've been praying for this for for decades. I know a pastor who just wrote a book on prayer. He said when he was young, he prayed that God would take away his asthma. Never did, until this past year. He's in his fifties; his asthma's gone. God hears your prayers, but His timing is different. Maybe the way he's going to answer is different than you expect. But I know this, God is listening to every prayer. Now, of course, there are are expectations that God has when we pray. For example, in 1 John 5, verse 14, it says, This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God, God expects us to pray according to his will. We learn that in the Lord's Prayer. That your kingdom come, your will is to be done on this earth. See, God's not interested in my agenda. He wants me to participate in his agenda. And if my prayers are according to his will, it says he hears us. Jesus said in John 15, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So God expects that we're abiding in his word, that you're reading your Bible. You're getting informed of what God's will is so that your prayers are coming from a good place. God's not like Santa Claus. You just make a list of things you want you hand it to him. God wants a relationship. He wants a partnership where he's working out his plan in and through us. And so God hears prayers and he answers prayers, but he answers in one of four ways. When when you pray, God, God may answer this way. He may go, what? I can't hear you because your sin is blocking your request. Because if you're harboring sin in your life, if you're living a life that's dishonoring to God, God says, I don't listen to those prayers because it's almost as if I'm going this way and I'm talking to God, but God's over the here. I'm not trying to I live for God, but I want God to do something for me. God says, I, I'm not playing that game. If you are seeking to please me, then it's different. And when you seek to please God, you get one of these three responses. First, yes, yes, God says, yes, yes, that's exactly what I was wanting to do for you, but I was waiting for you to ask, yes, yes. Sometimes God says, no, I have something better in mind. Maybe in our immaturity, we're asking for something that we really can't handle at this point in our lives. Maybe you pray, God, I really want to marry that guy or that gal, and God says, no. You're not ready for that person. Um, you're not ready, or you're not ready to handle, or maybe, maybe the success that like God says, yeah, if, if you got success now, you'd get this overblown head. No, no, not now. Later when you're mature, Yes. So, so it's no. In fact, that leads to the, the last one is wait. Wait. God wants to say yes, but he says it's just not the right time. I'm waiting to grow you. I'm waiting to orchestrate circumstances around you to make that possible. But, but my answer is wait. But God is faithful. You can count on him to hear and respond to your prayers. He'll answer in his time. He'll answer in the way that brings him the greatest glory. But he will answer. And I believe you and I need to be reminded of this day as we go into the Christmas season of God's faithfulness. God is faithful. God is faithful to keep his promises. Every promise he's made, he'll come through for you. He's promised to honor your faithfulness, to bless you for your obedience to him. God has promised to work out his plan in your life, to unfold it step by step. It may take a long time to see it, but God is working his plan out in your life. And finally, he's promised to answer your prayers. Don't give up. Whatever it is you've been praying for that would please God, don't give up because God is faithful. Sometimes we get deceived by circumstances. We get deceived by the culture around us. We get deceived by the darkness that seems to creep in. We start to say, I don't know if God's around me. He seems so far away. It seems like I'm in that silent period again. But God wants to break through the silence with his faithfulness. And his word is true. He is faithful. So here's what i ask you to do today. For some of you, you need to reclaim a promise God has made to you. Some of you need to be reaffirmed that you're on the right path. Just be faithful to the Lord. Some of you need to hold your plans lightly before him and say, God, work out your plan. I don't see it yet, but I trust you're working out a good thing in my life. And some of you just need to take that prayer request you put off to the side and bring it back to the table and say, God, I'm bringing it back here. I really believe this would please you. And so I'm going to hold on to this thing one more time.